I'm Sasha Ann Simons from Chicago State University, and this is Reset. We've enjoyed broadcasting today from the Chicago State University campus to hear how this educational gem leads the way towards equity in our region, especially for black and brown students. So it's fitting that we're revisiting our Reimagined Chicago series on education. Now, in partnership with the University of Chicago's Center for Effective Government at the Harris School of Public Policy, we've investigated how key institutions and systems work in our city and how they could work better. Let's now go back to one of those conversations that analyzed obstacles to school reform from a different point of view. Stanford political scientist Terry Moe argues that while urban school systems are in desperate need of innovative reforms, productive change is often blocked by stiff resistance from education's vested interests, notably teachers' unions and school boards. Moe's most recent book is The Politics of Institutional Reform, Katrina, Education, and the Second Face of Power. And for him, decades of research on school reform has frankly been a source of exasperation. Look, I've been studying American education reform for a long time. Uh, What stands out is that as a nation, we've agreed since the early 1980s that our school system is performing very poorly and needs to be reformed. Yet for decades, We've had a very difficult time doing that because these reforms have been powerfully resisted in the political process. So why have they been resisted? Well, that's what a lot of my research has been about. And what it shows is that while we might like to think that school reform is all about doing whatever it takes to make schools better for kids, there are powerful groups with a vested interest in the existing system that are threatened by reform and who benefit from the system as it is, even if it isn't performing very well. The most powerful vested interests are the teachers' unions, which represent the job interests of teachers, which is only normal and natural. Mm -hmm. Teachers are employees of the education system, and they get incomes and careers and job security from the system, whether or not it's doing a good job of teaching kids. Most major reforms, such as charter schools and accountability, that are intended to improve school performance involve big structural changes to the system that are disruptive and threatening in various ways to teacher jobs. So the unions have used all the power they can marshal, which is considerable, to fight these reforms, and they've been doing it for decades very successfully. They have their own interests at stake, job interests, and their interests are just not the same Mm -hmm. as the interests of kids. So this is just the tip of the iceberg, of course, and there's a lot more that can be said. Uh, But the simple bottom line is that the politics of education reform is not just about doing whatever works for kids. It's driven by power and by special interests, just like any other realm of public policy. So you mentioned these powerful groups. So I gather that's what you mean by that then, these teachers unions. That's right. I think it's really important to see that that this is not some sort of a negative critique of the teachers' unions, that they're the bad guys in all this. Vested interests are present in all governmental systems. You know, if you look at agriculture or transportation or defense, any area of public policy, there are going to be individuals and groups that benefit from the mere existence of these institutions and policies. And if you want to reform those institutions, good luck, because those vested interests are going to say, hey, you know, we don't want any change because we're benefiting from things as they are. And my point is just that this happens in education just like it happens in every other area of public policy. But in education, the vested interests are the teachers' unions and also uh, the people who run the school system, uh, typically around the country, school boards and their superintendents. 
So you are a critic of teachers' unions. Does that mean you also take issue with organized labor in general? Um, not really. Teachers have, under the law, every right to join unions, and also it makes perfect sense that they would want to, uh, to protect their jobs, which are so crucial for their lives and, and for their families. Also, if you poll teachers, which I have, uh, it turns out that the great majority of teachers all over the country want to belong to unions. But the problem arises that once they get organized, they're organized on the basis of job interests. That's why they join unions to protect their jobs. But when unions do that, they wind up being opposed to reforms that threaten their, uh, those jobs in any way, even if those reforms are very promising for students. So you mentioned other powerful interests that you feel are kind of getting in the way of, of transforming our public education system. You talk about teachers' unions, school boards, superintendents. Where do parents fall in this hierarchy? Um, parents also have a vested interest in the school system. They are direct beneficiaries. And when the system is performing badly, you know, they have a stake in rising up and saying, hey, you know, <laughs> we need to do something about this system. But the fact is parents are politically weak. And the kids, of course, have no power. And so this is a a deck that's very much uh, stacked against them. And while there are other groups that will weigh in on their side, uh, business groups uh, over the past few decades, philanthropists, you know, Bill Gates, Eli Broad, and others, and really because we have a political system in which it's very easy to block, you know, lots of checks and balances, it turns out that advantage goes to the vested interest because they just want to keep things as they are. Mm -hmm. Your book's subtitle, it references Hurricane Katrina. And you highlight the evolution of the post-Katrina New Orleans school system as this national model. What did you observe happening down there? Why did you point to this as an example? You know, this is really the most fascinating case of school reform in the modern history of the country. What happened in New Orleans was that the city was hit by a hurricane. In 2005, Katrina destroyed the city of New Orleans, and it destroyed the school system. And as a result, there were no kids going to school. A lot of the families left the city. And uh, the result was that the school board had no uh, schools to control and no resources. And all the teachers had to be let go. And when the teachers were let go, the union, uh, local union, which was extraordinarily powerful before then, had virtually no members and no power. And so this is a totally unique situation in the politics of education reform, where you had really an abysmally bad system that had been protected all along for decades by the local union and the local school board. And then all of a sudden, their power was wiped out. And so for that moment, you suddenly had a system in which reformers could come in and say, wow, we can actually try to do what's best for kids. And they're not facing opposition by powerful vested interests because they were destroyed by Katrina. And so what we see in New Orleans for the first time in this country is a reform process that is not constrained by power. What does reform look like when power is not in the way? And it turns out that the reformers there, led by the governor uh, and by Paul Pastrek, uh, the superintendent, they pursued a reliance on charter schools, but also on direct-run schools. They were sort of uh, moving their way through the darkness. Uh, These weren't a bunch of ideological zealots Uh They just wanted to do what worked. And over a period of years, four, five, six years, they moved their way toward a system that turned into an all-charter system. 
where virtually every student goes to a charter school and where they devise a system to make those charter schools work in a systematic way that's organized and that takes account of problems, how kids are going to get allocated across schools, you know, how choice takes place, and shutting down bad schools and only admitting charter providers that have a track record of success and so on. All this stuff they sort of learned over time, moving toward a system that they thought would be better and better for children. This is just the kind of thing that does not happen very easily anywhere else because power is in the way. And so what we can see in New Orleans is what kinds of innovative potential is released and taken advantage of when the power is taken away. Should we read your advocacy for charter schools as a desire to end publicly funded education as we know it? No. First of all, I'm a social scientist, and I don't see myself as a big advocate for anything unless there's evidence to show as much, right? And so in this case, what I would say is that the original system in New Orleans was terrible. The outcomes for students were abysmal. People's lives were being ruined by that system. And they needed reform, and they couldn't get it. And they got it because the power of the teachers' unions and the local school board uh, was taken away and reformers could actually move towards something they thought was better, and it was better. And so I think different communities around the country can make their own decisions, ideally, about what works for them and for their children. I think that if a charter school system, which gives parents choice and allows for the emergence of all sorts of uh, different alternatives for kids to the regular public schools, which may not be serving them well, which is typical in many urban areas, I think new alternatives are a huge plus. So what you'd want is to just allow these new schools to emerge, to have a a structure that imposes accountability on them and that shuts down bad schools when they prove not to be working, Um, but also to have them available alongside the regular public school system. And so if the regular public school system gets its act together and can attract kids who no longer have to go there but would choose to go there, fantastic. You know, I I think charter schools need to prove themselves and the regular public schools need to prove themselves. The problem in a typical city is that the regular public schools don't have to prove anything. The kids are trapped. And if those schools are not doing a good job, they have no alternatives. It's really important, I think, to give the kids alternatives. But also, I think it's really important to let the regular public schools prove themselves when they have somebody to compete with. Professor, what are some more examples of successes and failures in education reform on the local and state level that really stand out to you over the last couple of decades? Well, there were exciting developments at the local level in New York City while Michael Bloomberg was the mayor uh, and Joel Klein uh, was the superintendent of schools there. They were very aggressive in trying to promote charter schools and trying to promote accountability, and to take on the union, uh, which had long pretty much had its way there and had collective bargaining contracts that were filled with seniority provisions and all kinds of other provisions that really just got in the way of providing kids with the best possible education. And I think Bloomberg and Klein made a lot of progress. Uh, The downside there is that uh, Bloomberg only uh, was in office for a certain amount of time, and then the next mayor was de Blasio, who's an ally of the union. You know, there was, has been a lot of backsliding ever since then. So it's very difficult to protect these kinds of reforms. Another very promising development was in Washington, D.C., 
where actually charter schools had taken root before Michelle Rhee got there in the early 2000s. But because charter schools had been so popular in Washington, D.C., and siphoned off so many kids, it turns out that uh, the charter schools are mainly non-union, and the union lost a lot of members and a lot of money and power because of charter schools. And as a result, uh, Michelle Rhee, who wanted to get the regular schools covered by a performance contract that would hold teachers more accountable for actually teaching kids something, Michelle was very successful at doing that. And her successes have been carried over by other superintendents who have succeeded her and by other mayors. And precisely because they work. Washington, D.C. has been one of the success stories in urban education. Mm -hmm. This is a broad question, but can you just summarize for us your observations on education reform policies of President Trump and recent presidents? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I told you it was broad. uh, Barack Obama was a reformer. He's a Democrat, and the Democrats are allied with the teachers' unions, but he was not. He believed in education reform. He was a supporter of more school choice to give kids more options. He was a supporter of accountability, including performance-based evaluation for teachers. He wanted to shake up the system. He was concerned first and foremost with doing whatever works for kids. And now in the Trump era, this is no longer true on the Democratic side. Uh, I think Democrats have moved over to the anti-charter, super progressive sort of line that uh, we just have to protect the public school system as it is and pump more money into it, which I think when it comes to actually reforming the schools, not going to make the schools better. On the Trump side, meantime, Trump has fully embraced, at least rhetorically, school choice. Uh, But really, it is rhetorical. Trump couldn't care less about education reform. He never pushed it. And uh, during the first two years of his administration, he had a Republican House and Senate. Everything was all set up. They could have designed choice systems that were structured to really work and really expand school choice and promote at least their vision of reforms that would bring about an improved more productive American education system. But they didn't do anything like that. They did nothing, basically. Um, And, you know, uh, Betsy DeVos did some things in the Department of Education to pump up uh, private schools and, you know, to take on other issues like student loans. But the big structural reform issues uh, were basically dropped by the Trump administration. And the reason is that the president, who's in control of everything, was not interested And I think one of the uh, long-term consequences of the Trump years is that because Trump is who he is and because he is so extreme in so many ways and authoritarian inclined and all the rest, has given school choice a bad name, a stigma, as though choice is a bad thing for kids. And that, I think, is really unfortunate. Not all choice systems are good. They need to be designed in such a way that they really promote the best interests of kids. But when they are, as it was in New Orleans, they can work extremely well and be really productive major reforms of the education system, precisely the kind of things that we've been seeking for the last 40 years. So, Professor, this leads us to the big question. If you could reimagine this country's education system and totally build it from scratch, what would it look like? Well... You know, I am not (laughs) all-knowing. 
My ideal would be for states and communities around the country to be able to design school systems that are best for them. And I do think that the kind of school system that we've basically had for the last hundred years in which schools are run from the top down uh, through politics and bureaucracy, and all these systems are controlled, all schools are controlled from above through bureaucratic means, is not a formula for productive schools. Uh, That's my own view. And I think it's really good to shake things up by giving children and parents new choices. Uh, Charter schools are, I think, the best way to do that. Um, And the more choices, the better. But this does not mean eliminating the regular public school system. As I said earlier, it means uh, creating a parallel kind of choice system and allowing kids and parents to choose. And if they want to go to charter schools, great. If they want to go to the regular public schools, great. And then it really is going to turn on which schools are performing better, which schools are more responsive to their needs. And what's important is is not trying to save the existing public school system. It has not been serving kids well over decades. The important thing to do is to focus on the children and create systems that are well-designed that promote the best interests of kids. So there are ways to design choice systems that really work. There are also ways to design choice systems that are stupid and that don't work and that need to be done away with, right? It's not just choice that's great. It's choice that's designed in an appropriate, well-structured way. The same is true for accountability. We can't be spending $700 billion a year and not holding anybody accountable. There are bad ways to design an accountability system and good ways to design an accountability system. And, you know, so far, because politics is what it is, that's been a very difficult thing to do. That's Terry Moe. He's professor of political science at Stanford University. His most recent book is The Politics of Institutional Reform, Katrina Education and the Second Face of Power. Professor, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. And that's it for today's Reset. Come back all this week to hear the best from our Reimagined Chicago series on education. For more Reset interviews, subscribe to this podcast. And please give us a rating. It really helps other listeners find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again soon.